0: on to the BCP. I had uh, the ushers put a bunch of them out so you could see them and feel them. Talking about it is one thing. The order of service is another. Um, But um, some of you may recognize this particular version, this little leatherette bound thing, this was given to me at my confirmation. And so I, 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 I still have it. Um, it's, uh, it's still, I, I rarely consult it to be honest, but it's nice to have. And it's what I leafed through as I was prepping this service. And I only brought it to say that there's a sentimental attachment for lifelong Anglicans. And, and I know that many of you are not lifelong Anglicans. I would venture to say that at least 50% of our current congregation are not lifelong Anglicans. So for those of you who aren't, there is, for us who are lifelong Anglicans, there's no way to come at this stuff except through a little bit of sentiment. Um, And even though this had ceased to be the main worship book in my parish, because my dad was very much in the Reformation get things moving uh, camp, and my dad was the parish priest, I only used this as the regular book in my parish until I was 10 years old. But even with that little introduction, it's still in my bones particularly because of the music that was attached to it. And we're going to sing some of that music today. Oh, I'm sorry for the camera people. I'm running back and forth to get things I forgot. So here we go. Harwood Jones, get back in frame. Okay. Um, So I've noted in the order of service that some parts of the service have CP numbers in them. Uh, so the curie, the response in curie on page 2, 677, 678. If you've never sung this before, some of it, it'll come back to you like riding a bike. But um, that all this music is, in fact, in our hymn book. Um, and so I... I may not have gotten all the notes down there that I should have, but 677, 678, I'll give you a little pause at that moment, so if you don't know the music, you can turn to the appropriate page in the hymn book, and you can sing along, because it's your lines to sing as well as mine. Uh, it is very chanty, and I love that. Uh, it, it has It is, the, the music is so good and uh, and has served to drill those words deeply into my bones so that I can't say them without singing them now. Um, and that's what music does, of course. And fascinatingly, this uh, particular setting, the liturgical music, was written by a guy named Murbeck, who was his last name, and it was written in, let's see if I've got this right, 1550. So the music goes back to the year 1550, um, and... There's so many rabbit holes. I, I was saying to Andrea uh, as I was prepping this stuff, the problem is I could talk for hours on this stuff and I have to keep it a little tighter. But as a musicologist, it's also great because it was an evolution. Anglican chant with four-part harmony was an evolution from the earlier Gregorian chant or plain song, which just has a single line that moves around. And what we did in England was that, well, we, you know, this new kind of music was starting to emerge with Bach, you know, rocking and rolling down in Germany and all this stuff of harmony and so in England we kind of did kind of both. We wanted that feeling of Gregorian but we wanted the harmony and so we came up with this unique um, musical genre called Anglican chant which is what Marbeck composed in and is what we're going to be singing today. Now um, the only other things I will say before we begin and I'm trying to keep my comments to now and during the sermon so that we can just pray through the service um, that the other thing that's that's hard as we approach this book today is that we always because we are creatures of today we are 21st century people it's hard not to look at this through the lens of a 21st century person and i'm going to ask that we try not to do that try to imagine because this is lar- this is edition is 1962 and there were revisions that went through the the years but the 1962 canadian book which is what this is is a very very conservative adaptation of the 1662 book from england um so we you know we changed some of the the, the 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 language had changed. English had changed, and so we changed some of the spellings. You don't have Fs for Ss and things like that. Um, but also, there were little theological changes along the way, and so this is very much a part of an evolving, a developing tradition. Um, so the, um, uh, the 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 business of being in a developing tradition um, is important. And also trying to put ourselves in the mindset of the historical period, we we tend to evaluate the past by the standards of the present. And while it's good that we have learned the things that we have done, um, we have to exercise a little bit of historical imagination. And I think it's good for us that we do that. I think that this exercise today—I haven't edited a single word—and some of you are going to go, "Oh, I can't get past the men, 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 man, 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 men, men, man, man, man." True. It's awful by today's standards, granted. However, if I had started at editing that, where do you stop? Because our theology has changed since then, a whole bunch of other things about how we do liturgy, the order has changed since then, and all good reasons. We have continued to develop beyond this point. But what I want us to get into is that historical imagination so we can see it for what it was at the time, not what it looks like to us now. So, first of all, this is completely unchanged in all its original glory. Um, some stuff has not aged well. It's just how it is. Sorry, it's, it's what we're doing. Um, the the second point, if we're trying to get back into the mindset, and here I have to go back to 1549, 1552, 1559, and 1662. These are the dates of the major revisions that developed the prayer book that we have today. And if we go back in those times, um, my points are. This is the English book of common prayer, right? And that one statement is all I want to tell you. Number one, it's in English. This is radical. This is crazy. Because until this stuff was developed, all the services had been in Latin for a thousand years. Right? And you, you think we have, you know, problems with change now. When you take the sacred text from, that had been in, in use for a thousand years and you put it into English, which people use for commerce and, you know, normal speech, well, this is sacred speech. Well, how do we, how do we uh, uh, get into, use normal speech for sacred things? So it's a book in English, and, and this was radical. This was controversial. This, people got killed over this stuff. Um, You think culture wars are bad today? Um, Well, Reformation-era England, there's a lot more burning at the stake, including the author of this book, who was burnt at the stake for essentially writing this book. So 1549 was in English, and it was kind of a little bit Protestant, kind of Lutheran almost because Luther was making big waves on the continent. Some of his ideas were pretty good. And so there was a whole contingent of folks in England that said, you know, we need to get with the times. And so if you think of modern culture wars, the Protestants were the progressives of their day. And they were pushing for change. And we need to change and we need to change. And there was a conservative movement um, as well. And you ended up getting two power groups. You had the Presbyterians or the Puritans on the one hand, and you had the bishops on the other. And, you know, in, by the time we get to 1604, King James I was trying to settle this, you know, the, the struggle between the two groups, and so he would meet with the, the Presbyterians on one day, and then he'd have a delegation from the bishops the next day, and then he'd issue a royal decree saying, all right, I've heard both sides, here's what we're going to do to keep the peace in England. And that's the process by which this book largely got made. So, It's in English. It is a book. Oh, and here I have a great quote. Because some of the reformers were really wanting a little bit more flexibility on the part of the the worship leaders to pray extemporaneously and not be locked into the book. Because the book was a law of England. It was a way that England was enforcing by, well, by force what words we are going to say on Sunday morning. And it was the Protestants that wanted more freedom because then the Protestant-leaning clergy could be more biblical than these things that are more Catholic that are in the book and we can't be tied down to the book. And the bishops, this is again from that 1604-ish meeting, have this wonderful thing. I'm going to quote it in full because it's it's delicious. Um, uh, Liturgy could not be circumscribed by Scripture, but rightfully included those matters which were generally received in the Catholic Church. And the bishops rejected extempore prayer as apt to be filled with idle, impertinent, ridiculous, sometimes seditious, impious, and blasphemous expressions. (laughs) I'm fainting at the thought of it. The idea that you could just pray with whatever came into your mind or heart at the moment is not to be tolerated in public worship. Um, And so uh, this this stamped a certain character on Anglicans for which we get mocked by our friends in the Presbyterian and other denominations that did get back into extemporary prayer. And and modern Anglicans cautiously think it might be an okay idea sometimes. Um, But... It is still a book, and we are still people of the book, and one of the things about liturgical innovation is that you're all sitting there as a captive audience and victims of my liturgical innovation. And so one of the things that I've taken very seriously personally, and my ethos comes from the fact that we are a people of the book, is that I am accountable to this document at some level, that it's not my liturgy, it's our liturgy. And we went through an admittedly messy and imperfect political process that came up with the words in the book, but the fact that it is a book means it is ours. It means it's not the property of whoever holds the pulpit at the time. So it's more communitarian. And that same point is on my last little note this morning uh, for this, this section, which is that it is a book of common prayer, which is different from private or personal prayer. When we pray personally, we pray from the heart. We pray in conversation with the Lord. And whatever that conversation is, it's right for you. It's right. When we pray in public and in common, we, th- there are standards for what we do together. And that's, of course, why we fight about the words and what posture we use and what clothes we wear because everything that we do in common says something and the meaning of what we've been trying to say in common prayer is is why it matters. Um, but again, it's the same point. It's because it's our prayer. And who gets to control our prayer became the big um, issue of the Protestant Reformation in England. And eventually, which you'll get in my second installment, um, we will hear that it was a compromise. Um, And that, of course, is the great uh, tragedy and gift of the Anglican tradition. Uh, So we'll get to the the details of that uh, compromise in the sermon section, but I've given you enough of a little primer to say, let's start and enjoy praying together. I'm, gonna, I'm going to do it the way I would normally do it, which is after the announcements. I'm going to leave. I'm going to come back in. This is just Chris now, but when I come back in, I am the parish priest. And so we will have it with ceremony and dignity, and it will be the liturgy. So that being said, and that was very fun, thank you for indulging me. Um, let us prepare for worship. Please be seated. I'm, I'm not invoking the Trinity for this because it's back to lecture time. Uh, so again, it's back to just Chris again. Um, and uh, uh, my apology up front, I know you shouldn't apologize, but I'm going to do it anyway. These are all going to be over simplifications. And I know some of you out there are wonderful historians. And so if you want to correct any point, please feel free as I shake your hand. That'll be fine. Um, but we are talking about the history of the Reformation in England, which formed this book. And it's a wonderful, wonderful period to study, fascinating, awful in many ways. Um, but the, the legacy of that period lives with us today in the modern-day denominations and so forth, and certainly within our culture. Um, and uh, um, I think I'm going to have to start by saying... One of the interesting things about this book is that it is a full-fledged manual of church operation. Um, it's all the services that you will need for the basic operation of a, a, um, of a parish or a, a worshiping community. Um, I remember uh, a military chaplain who was studying with me in seminary in the 90s even, saying that he had done some lay chaplaincy work as a military guy um, up in remote stations uh, in, in the north of Canada, and where there was very limited space to bring anything, and he had to make some forced choices about what he was going to bring, which meant that he, he had to choose between bringing a Bible and a book of common prayer. And he chose the book of common prayer because it was practical, it had all the services that he'd need that he'd actually be conducting, and because in it is an entire copy of the Sunday lectionary, Um, So it has a lot of biblical text in it. In this section, um, in this little section of the book here, is basically all the readings, full text, King James, um, of everything you would need to run Sunday services. So he could run Sunday services and everything he needed was in this book. And that was very much the intent. Um, And our more modern book of alternative services is not a prayer book. Because it doesn't contain all the policies, it doesn't contain all the services for all the things, Um, it just has alternative services to the Book of Common Prayer. And so technically on the books, this is still the official prayer book of the Anglican Church of Canada, and those who love it will never cease, never tire of reminding us of this fact. It's still the official book, you know, I know. Uh, The problem with this being the official book is that most of everything in it has been superseded by policy, but now the policies are scattered over this document and that document and online and various other things. So the lectionary in here, which meant that the the military chaplain didn't need to bring a Bible with him, has been superseded. We use different readings on Sunday because we did an ecumenical project with uh, with other mainline denominations and came up with the revised common lectionary, which made some improvements and developments on the lectionary that was in here and so it's, we can't use it anymore. Um, so that whole section is now obsolete um, as are other sections of the book. But one of the things that, just a little political opinion of mine, we should have made another one. We never did. And so what we've gotten in Canada is these, these alternative services that have continued to proliferate. And so we've now got a number of documents that General Synod have approved, which, which are alternative services to the alternative service book and we will soon have alternatives to the alternatives to the alternatives and so on. And at some level, I would go, come on, let's just fight and make a new book and come up with something that is common prayer once again because we are once again in the situation where worship in the Anglican church is being balkanized, where if you go from one Anglican church to another, you may not know what to predict or one way or another depending on which of the services and styles of Anglicanism you're going to get. And, and that's one of the struggles that created this book which was that that struggle between unity and diversity. How do we pray in common But how do we recognize that not all of us are on the same page theologically, stylistically, in terms of our piety and all the rest of it? And one of the things that I love about what ended up happening finally, 1662, the the, the revisions have pluses and minuses and they veered this way and oversteered and had politics and all the rest of it. But finally in 1662, largely thanks to the legacy of Queen Elizabeth I, so the, the monarchy is a big player in this, um, we had a, an effective compromise, and what it did was that, after struggles between Catholics and Protestants, where you had you know a conservative and a reforming element in the church, the conservatives basically just wanted Catholicism without the Pope, which is what Henry the Eighth wanted because he was Henry the Eighth and wasn't a great guy, um, and um, but even Henry the Eighth wanted to change some of the theology. I'm sorry, I'm digressing, but it's too much fun. Uh, Henry was a politician. He was a king. And the problem with the doctrine of purgatory is that it gave the church too much power because if you were worried about your soul in the afterlife, you needed to pay those priests and monks and nuns to pray for that soul. So your grandma got out of the afterlife and which gave them a lot of money and a lot of clout. And if they got to say something, you had to do what they said or else your soul might be in jeopardy. So Henry, who wanted the money of the monasteries, which he in fact dissolved, and he was a Cad and a scoundrel. Um, He said, We also need to deal with this purgatory doctrine. And so the Anglican Church is not going to have purgatory. At least it'll still be there, but we don't believe the Church has any impact on it at all. And so it was the first theological innovation in line with the Reformers. But uh, it was only after Henry died, because everything else Henry liked Catholic, only after Henry died that the real wars started um, between what we were going to be. And it ended up being a very Protestant book. Um, 1549 was a very very gently protestant book it was the first book that cranmer had written and it was uh, cranmer and others he's not the only author um and it was gently protestant but then in 1552 he was able to do what he really wanted to and he got a proper protestant book it was practically lutheranism and it included things eventually like the The 42 articles. Oh, that's another wonderful rabbit hole. Did you know there were not always just 39 articles? There were originally six articles, and then there were 10, and then there were 42, and there were some declarations in between, and this started before the prayer book. It started in Henry's time as they were trying to articulate what the beliefs of the English Church would be, and when the 42 articles came out, they were 100% Protestant, and they included a, a wonderful rubric called the Black Rubric. And it sounds sinister and demonic. Um, and it maybe was seen that way by certain elements of the church as well. But it was printed in black ink, unlike the other stuff that was in red ink. So it was called the black rubric because of the ink that was used in the printer, which is another wonderful aside. Never mind all that. The black rubric said, the black rubric said um, that it was all about how do you come up to the altar to receive communion? And do you? how do you receive communion? Because the reformers were saying we don't want to have kneeling for communion because that has to do with the veneration of the blessed sacrament, which has to do with the belief in the transubstantiation of the elements into the literal body and blood of Jesus. And so you treat it as if it were Jesus hanging on the cross right there, which is why sometimes you put them in a monstrance and you parade around the church and everybody bows down to the bread and the wine and everything and we're not going to have any of that because we're Protestant now, and so we're going to have a rubric in the articles that says, fine, you're allowed to kneel, but you need to know that you're kneeling only as an expression of piety, but not because there's anything going on in the bread and wine. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing at all. And there was, in fact, another rubric that said, in, after the service, well, first of all, you're not going to use unleavened bread, just use normal bread, and after the service, the curate takes it home and eats it at his table. Because the point is, it's all going to go home. It's not special after the service. We are just remembering the sacrifice Christ made once and for all on the cross. It's an event in the past that happened historically then, and we are participating in it by remembering it. And the Catholics are like, no, it's a sacrifice. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross is being recapitulated right now in the mystical reality of the sacrament. So that really is Christ up there, so you treat it like Christ. And so this is the big war over, do you kneel? Because kneeling meant that you're thinking that, transubstantiation and one of the great uh, you know this black rubric said you're allowed to kneel we're not going to outlaw it because they knew people would do it anyway Um, Anglican church classic you you know (laughs) you know how long I've wanted to have you know um, traffic control for communion in, in this parish good luck You know, I try to get ushers on big services and people go to wherever and whenever they want anyway. So it's like kneeling during communion. They knew they couldn't stop people from kneeling, but they could put something in there to say, you're not allowed to believe this horrible Catholic stuff about it. And this is a very controversial rubric. Um, In fact, the, 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 the convocation was present enough that they couldn't, confirm all 42 of them, which is why only 39 of them got confirmed. And Elizabeth I herself said, I am not doing the black rubric. I'm as monarch refusing to assent to that one. And this is because this is all acts of parliament that we're talking about. And so she said, I I withhold my consent for article 30, uh, was it 38? Um, I forget which number it was. Uh, There's my bad history again. Uh, The black rubric had a particular... But then once Elizabeth was excommunicated by the Pope, there was no hope of appeasing the Catholics. So she said, fine, you can have the black rubric. And we went back up to 39. So the Anglican struggles about what we were going to do Went over a century, and there were wars, and there was there was Mary Queen of Scots, and there was the the, um, the, the Oliver Cromwell period, where it went very Puritan, and finally it settled um, in 1662 as a compromise. And the best analogy I have with this book is that it's uh, I've I've heard Catholicism and Protestantism, Protestantism likened to Apple and Microsoft. Because Catholicism is like Apple, you just follow the the, the, the the box that they give you, and you just you follow it step by step and you proceed logically to salvation that 's how you get there Windows in, in kind of anything goes you know um, you just it 's all dos it 's impenetrable, and you can be super nerdy about it, but basically you can do whatever you want because it 's windows um, and Anglicans are like Uh, are like Microsoft Windows which is that it looks like Apple but underneath you can ordain women and gays if you want to (laughs) because it's still Protestant it's still DOS under there really right? and I think that's a really good analogy for this book because when you dig under it it's still pretty much Protestant which is why in Canada if you had to register yourself as Protestant or Catholic if you were Anglican you would say Protestant um, and you wouldn't even think about it because we were a Protestant denomination the problem is that we continued to evolve since then, and we had Catholic movements within Anglicanism to say, because the compromise wording in here allowed you to keep your personal Catholic beliefs, and even the black rubric got changed so that, you know, it was still about piety. Um, but the, the words of the actual communion service allows you to be a Catholic and say those words, and that was very much by design. Because, again, thank God for Queen Elizabeth I. She said, we shall not build windows into men's minds. Which means that as long as you can say the words, you have the freedom to interpret them in a way that suits your conscience, whether you happen to be Protestant-minded or Catholic-minded. So there was this incredible permissiveness. We have to say these words together. And so you design words that everyone can say so you can keep England together. So you can come together on Sunday morning and you can pray together, even though your neighbor might believe in transubstantiation um, and you might not. It's okay, because you've said the words, you've prayed together, and your own personal theology is your personal theology. So it was the development of this idea that there are some things that are important that we do together and say together, but some things we can agree to disagree, and it's actually okay. And that was encoded into this book. It's one of the things that makes this radical and amazing, even though it feels musty and old today. It was insanely radical and amazing at the time because it's a value that we are once again in danger of losing. And I'm going, you know, sorry, I'm not going to preach that sermon. But this, this old school, small l liberalism that says we are not going to agree on things, we have to decide that there are some things it's okay not to agree about and try not to kill each other over. That's really important. that's one way we can stay together as human beings. And that's what this book does. And and I will just finish up with where it shows it. I'm sorry I didn't put it in the liturgy today. I'm going to use it. But it's the words that I say when I hand out the bread and non-COVID the wine. And... I'm sorry, there's an irony in not handing out the wine because the prayer book says you hand out in both kinds because handing out only the bread was a Catholic thing and all the worshipers are entitled to all the sacrament. And so we hand out bread and wine, which we normally would do if it weren't COVID. So I, I know. Now the words, I, I know them by heart. When I hand out the bread, um, the no the, uh, it's, it's gone. I have to look it up. I'm, I'm three years rusty. I, it's true. It's true. I do, I do know this, and I need the first phrase, and then it'll all be there. Um, here we go. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you, and feed on him in thy heart by faith with thanksgiving. Now, that did not always read like that. When the, when the book was Protestant, it only had the second half. And you can see the arguments take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee back then and feed on him in thy heart by faith with thanksgiving. So it's about your internal state as you receive a gift that was given once and for all on the cross. Protestant, 100%, right? First half, 100% Catholic. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, which is this bread right now, Which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. It is doing something spiritual and magical to you right now by receiving this. You are taking Christ's body into your body. And so how do we solve this problem? They're completely irreconcilable. Well, we put them together and we say them both. And we do that for both the bread and the wine. And so I have faithfully said them both. Whenever we did this service at quarter to eight, I would always say the whole long thing. And it's too long to say for every individual person. So practically, I say, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was given for you. Preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ's body was given for you and feed on him in thy heart by faith with thanksgiving. Next, right? So I do four, four per, right? So one, one of you gets half a Catholic, the other half Catholic, half Protestant, half Protestant. But it all works out, you know. So if, if you really care about this, you'll have to figure out where in line you're going to be because that's, that's what you're going to get. So, uh, and again, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for thee and be thankful, right? Catholic, Protestant, both. And that is what I love about this. And it's a, it's a snapshot in time of the Church of England trying to, trying to find the best of both worlds, trying to take what was good about Protestantism and what was good about Catholicism and marry them together, even though we know the ideas don't always mix with each other. But there's something to be said for both of these views. And my only sermon about that is, this is something that is a gift to the world, especially now. How can we learn that people who don't agree with us are not monsters, that they are human beings of good conscience that see things differently from us. And, and I, I fear that we are coming into another illiberal time where there are, there are not, there's not a loyal opposition, there's only an enemy. And, and we went through that. We burnt the author of this at the stake. Let's not go there again. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen that was a sermon at the end. But anyway, that's the lecture. So enjoy the rest of the service. It's, it's, oh yeah. The other thing is you've gotten the King James for the, for the readings this morning. you noticed, I'm sure you noticed that. Um, but between the two of them, the King James Bible and the Book of Common Prayer, you have the foundation of English literature. So all the literary heads among you rejoice.